Sean. Hey, Radcast is on. And welcome to the show, Mr. Jim Zumbo. Gentlemen, I am pleased to be here, and I use that term loosely when I say gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Al Winder. Just want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out with us on a podcast for a little bit. Hey, I'm looking forward to it. There's nothing makes me happier than a cold in Minnesota. If I can't be out fishing, I should be talking about fishing. (laughs) Hailing from Wisconsin, Jenna Waller. Thank you so much for having me. It's Redcast. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. Powered by Bo Spider. Brought to you by PK Lures and High Mountain Seasonings. And now, here's your hosts, Patrick Edwards and David Merrill. How's it going, David? Oh, I'm in the studio. Great <laughs> indoors. It's it's getting to be wintertime, Patrick. The seasons are changing rapidly. It's been crazy to see fall show you know that it's waning at this point but hey it's been a good fall for you it looked like you were able to get out and do some hunting which i have yet to do i i definitely booked and scheduled some time and there is nothing better than a few days in the woods with no cell service whether you tag out or not good friends camaraderie having a goal and a mission of i don't care if it's a fishing trip a backpack trip a mountain bike trip a rock climbing trip just being able to unplug from our uber chaotic busy world and focus on that singular goal and mission whatever it is it's good time so yeah i I don't want to make anybody jealous with the uh, days in the field that i spent but uh, uh it was a little sad to fill both my tags as quickly as i did because then it was now what do i do so i've been bouncing around like a bb in a tin can waiting for these trade shows to start and they're gonna come quickly but i wanted to get into it specifically mule deer, Wyoming. I set a goal last year when I harvested my deer, which was a good buck. Two years ago, we did a five-day high elevation early rifle hunt. I really like those hunts, Patrick. And why? Through and through, I'm an elk hunter. I like calling elk. I like that cat and mouse game. It's just something that it's a, it's not checkers, it's chess. And the, all the odds are in the elk's favor. So when you do become successful archery elk hunting, it's just, that's the creme de la creme, right? That's the huge laker. That's the huge king salmon. And then you're like, let's go catch some crappie. It's hard to get excited to go crappie fishing if there's northerns in the same body of water. All the crappie guys are like, no. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) It's a little hard for me to get excited to go shoot whitetail if there's elk running around the woods and I have an elk tag. But... I'm not knocking any of those sports. Go out, enjoy all of them. I'm just saying, for me, elk's number one. But I've had a goal, and the goal's still out there, and it's to kill a monster mule deer buck. This year had a lot more challenges with that, too, I'm sure, because we just went through one of the most epic, record-setting cold winters and snowy winters that we've ever had in Wyoming. So they reported, and they being game and fish, something like 80% of the adult deer herd died in the unit I was hunting. That's a unit here in Wyoming. Now, part of that whole philosophy was if I found a deer, I was going to let it pass. If I found the deer, I was going to take it. And I think everybody should do that to an extent. Now, seasons and bag limits are set. Some people argue that they're too liberal. Some people say they're too restrictive. We've talked about this. Biologists set the season, and if one species gets overpopulated, it can be a problem. However, mule deer specifically here in the West, this is the ninth year I've hunted this unit. And typically I book five days for the hunt. This year we booked 
12 days. And most years we see between 100 and 150 deer in five days. 12 days, you would think 300 deer would be reasonable. You know, Mm -hmm. if we covered twice the country in twice the amount of time, we saw 12 mature bucks. And none of them were exceptionally large. And this was two to three guys glassing high-end optics, getting on a ridge pre-dawn, sitting down, looking over multiple basins, and sometimes we'd glass that basin till dark. Mm -hmm. I can remember there was one spot that we typically go to one or two glassing ridges where you can see four or five really good big basins, timbered north, open south, and those deer, depending on what they're doing, depending on the weather, and that's why I like to go as late as I can for that rifle opener. It's still an early rifle hunt here in the West. It's not a November. It's a, it's mid-September, so it's relatively warm. But those deer can be in their summer routine, and they like to go bed under one little tree, and then they'll come out and feed in these open basins. And it's just a, there is something about being at or above timberline at daybreak and that anticipation of, is there a monster deer in this open basin that we can see 80% of it. And so the game is you sit in a spot that's likely to as much country as you can visibly cover and you find the deer and you watch him go to his bed and you hope that no other hunters walk through that basin that day. And realistically, guys, if you're trying to do this style hunting, this is not big woods timber, just stalk through. This is spot and stock. You need to spot these bucks first because these big bucks, you really get one chance at them. You booger them up. They, they run forever. They run. <laughs> they go in the deep, dark timber, and they go nocturnal. They don't, get, yeah. they don't get big for a reason. So it was a very mentally demanding hunt when we're looking over basins that I've seen a dozen deer in feeding, and we're seeing one or none. None. I can remember I got a wild hare. We decided to pull camp and hike up another ridge, set up camp, got up in the dark and hiked out that ridge about three miles and set up in the dark, waited for daylight and glass till dark that day in a great spot. Used Onyx, said, hey, look, from this vantage point, I can see two miles to my left, a mile to my right, some of the country below me and all the country across from me. And what you're not going to get a better vantage point than this. And to sit there for pushing 14 hours, but got light at 6 and dark at 7.45 and not see a deer, that was, <laughs> it was rough. That movement about buy a deer tag, save a deer, but don't punch the tag, I can get behind. There was a couple people, and I'm going to talk about it, is they didn't remove all the meat on the deer they harvested. Now, I told the person who actually witnessed it firsthand, I said, you need to call the game warden. Mm-hmm. And you need to turn those people in. He's oh, call them, get the information. And these people had left some neck and front shoulder meat on because they said it was bloodshot. They had killed small yearling bucks and said they're meat bucks. My opinion, and this is just my opinion, you let a one-year-old deer grow, even if he's a spike or a forked horn, if these little scraggly basket bucks that everybody says, oh, they're meat bucks, they just need a couple years to mature. And all of a sudden, I think of my colt out here in the yard that we've been raising, right? He was a little dinky. I was like, man, is he going to turn out to be a horse? And this last six months, we've been graining him, sent him to the trainer, and he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I was wrestling at 137 pounds in high school at almost six foot. I'm now 200 pounds, right? <laughs> you got to get some age and some maturity on these deer before you decide that they're cold deer and they're never going to mature and be something. 
amazing. So I was a little frustrated to hear guys that were Wyoming residents went in there and said, oh, we just didn't have time. So we got some meat bucks. And I'm like, in this unit that's potential 200 inch plus deer and has produced those kind of deer for year after year, going in and shooting a fork and horn doesn't help the genetics, doesn't help herd management, doesn't help buck to doe ratios. So, and then to leave some of the meat is what, that's kind of insult to injury. And we've talked about this. If I'm taking a 12 year old kid on their first hunt and they want to, it's an any animal, say it's a elk tag and it's an any elk and they want to shoot a cow. Great. Right. If we go on a deer hunt, it's an any deer hunt. They want to shoot a doe. Great. Now I can get behind some of the Eastern mentality of if we let these bucks mature and do some herd management, we can have a little better trophy potential, right? And the same thing with take panfish in a lake, right? If you remove some of those predators and if you don't go in there all the time and pull your limit of 20 panfish every time, you throw a few back, you all of a sudden get some bigger panfish. I'm just going to argue this side of it is if they don't want certain bucks taken out of the unit, they need to, just like a slot limit on a lake, if you want three-point or bigger taken then make that the regulation because I'm, I'm coming from the standpoint of if someone has a buck tag and it's any buck too bad. That's if that's the one they took, that's the one they took. Just if you have a six fish limit on Boyson for walleye, if they keep 12 inch walleyes, not a whole heck of a lot I could do about it. If they do Lendo and it's 14 inches or bigger, that's a little different, right? But I don't know. I have a hard time giving hunters or anglers a hard time if that's what if that's what it's set at, that's what it's set at, and they can take what they want. Now, when it comes to leaving meat on the carcass, that's a different issue. I'm a stickler about it. I am like with the way I flay my walleye. I take the cheek meat. I take the little, we call them the bunny ears, the section right here that's got a little bit of meat. So I take as much as I can off of fish, and that's out of respect for the resource. And the cheek and meat I is not in the regulations, right? That's above and beyond. And yep. you can watch the, the filleting quartering video i did right <laughs> yep. we kept the shank on the fronts and the hinds on the elk. shanks are good man when it's we didn't roast it it, it went in the burger pile but still <laughs> don't grind the shanks <laughs> uh, i know i understand but around no, here good. we eat a lot of burger <laughs> and you know it's just time to get it done someday yeah. i will i won't grind the shanks all right seth if you're out there screaming someday just for you i won't grind a shank but at the moment they go with the grind pile however my point being is between all the neck meat because i take up to the last vertebrae on the elk all yep. the neck meat the brisket meat and i take the shanks and, and that meat's good too man you're talking 30 pounds on that big bull elk of burger how many meals is that yeah, exactly. And that's for a lot of families, they thought a pound at a time. So that's 30 meals. My house, it's 15. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine too. And dad might be the one eating most of that. But. Yeah. But like, I, I get what you're saying though. With mule deer, especially I've grown up hunting mule deer here since I was a little kid, right? Like it's, that was one of my first animals. First one was a pronghorn. Second one was a mule deer. And I think the biggest thing is for those units, if the game and fish is real adamant about certain size bucks they need to have that in there and i understand what you're saying but i also am one of those people that i'm not 100 percent on board with a lot of that what i would call more of an east coast mentality of if you shot a smaller buck then you're the devil or like around here you kept a rainbow trout you must be the worst person alive it's yeah don't really agree with that. So I got to speak with, and I won't throw them under the bus, but they've hunted that unit for 30 years. And they're non-resident. 
They used to be a resident on the last two times went in the seventies. They came every year because they lived here and they were a resident. They moved out of state. They came 15 years ago and then they came this year and they've notably seen the decline and decrease in that unit specifically. And so what I'm advocating for is the, it, it's going to be a little controversial, but a twofold, two-pronged attach is this unit that I've been hunting is general for residents. Unlimited people can go in there and then there's no antler restriction. I would personally advocate for some sort of a, I don't want to see, the one thing I don't want to see I really love about this state is I can go buy my general tag down here at Rocky and if I want to go hunt with my buddy up in Cody Powell level, I can go hunt with him. If I want to go over to Sheridan, I can go hunt there. If I want to go over to Afton Thane, Alpine, Jackson, Pinedale, I can go. There's a lot of general deer units. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to go the way of the dodo where you just section the state down to where like 127 or 157, those tags are, they're good tags. But they're few and far between. I've never got one and I want to go hunt deer every year. So I want to see us manage this resource responsibly. And what do we need to do to get the quality back? I think we should have some units where it's does and spikes are, are fair game and go mm -hmm. for it. But Absolutely. Like, them. like up around the Sheridan area, man, there's so many elk. It's just insane right now. Like there, there are certain parts of the state where elk are way overpopulated. But here's the issue is that they can't, like hunters can't get access to most of the ground that they're on. So that's a whole nother issue. But I do want to go back to something you were talking about because I hear hunters say two different things. And this is why I always challenge them on. First thing is I hunt for the meat, right? The meat's important to me. I want to have the meat. And then they turn around and they say, but you shouldn't shoot anything unless it's this size. So then I'm like, okay, which is it here? Because you're telling me two different things. You're telling me that you really care about the antler size and but the most important part is the meat it can be you're right like mature bucks have more meat on them period mature bulls have more meat on them period however don't you have a straw man argument when you start playing in both of those realms and both of those worlds because some people only have two days or a day to hunt like me most of the time i'm a day hunter most of the time because i don't have the ability to schedule out four or five days for hunting can't do it so if I see something that I can tag out on the day that I'm up there with my rifle, it's going down. And that's <laughs> where I care what about I'm meat. advocating for is, yes, and if you care about meat, elk are above management quotas across the state. Yep. And cow elk are probably the easiest to harvest of the ungulate species next to doe whitetail yep. in an alfalfa field or maybe antelope. So if it's really, if you're the hunter, I want the meat, I want the meat, leave, your, leave the mule deer alone. Target the white tail, target the cow elk, right? Yep. That's where I'm going with it, isn't it? I'm not trying to bash and make a huge argument of or pro for con. I'm just saying in this unit specifically where I'm going with the objective is to shoot a big mule deer buck. Mm -hmm. The quintessential front of the calendar mule deer buck. Not just a, hey, he's a nice one, the big one. And why? I have big elk, Patrick, a lot of them. I've proven that I can do that. It's just every angler, you want to get the biggest you can. I mean, if you, if that's something you care about, right? And I'm the same way. I want to catch the biggest fish that I can, so I don't fault you at all for wanting to get the biggest. I get frustrated when people keep really big walleye, but it's legal, so there's nothing I can do about it. So if somebody takes home a 10 or 12-pound walleye, I'm like, well, that's a bummer, but there's nothing I can do. Like, it's not illegal. Can I say I would probably throw that one back? Yeah, but... 
I don't know their situation. Maybe they're going to go put it on the wall. And to me, that's no big deal either. Like, it's a fish of a lifetime. It's half the cost of a replica. I would prefer to do replicas myself if they're going to be that big. It's their call. In that realm specifically, I think fish replicas, in my opinion, looking at mounts on the wall, I prefer the look look of the replica. They look better because they don't have to be molded out. You can buy a blank, right? And then it's up to the artwork, really. But I don't blame anybody for wanting to get a big mule deer. I remember the first time I shot a big, bigger mule deer. It was a five-point buck. I was very excited. It was like, that was awesome. It was really cool. And it was an area where you had to shoot a buck that was at least three points or better. And I don't even know now if they that area has been hit pretty hard. I don't even know how many bucks are coming out of there nowadays. But I remember one that was about a 200 buck that I didn't get him. I shot at him, but I missed him. He ran for two miles before he stopped to look at me and keep going. And when Uh, you (laughs) see one of those deer that is over 30 inches or over 200 inches in, we're not talking just a big, massive drop time. Beautiful. Ah, There is something uber special about just even seeing one of those anymore. So that's Mm -hmm. what am I advocating for short of, hey, let's close season down for a year or two. Let's advocate as sportsmen. Let's get together and rally and say, hey, the mule deer need a little extra help. That's what I'm reporting here is boots on the ground, having been in that unit pretty much, I think eight out of the last 10 years, I've been hunted it eight or nine times, been there almost every year. Now I've only been for a week. This year was the first time I was there for just shy of two weeks. And I was, it just was a tough year for the deer. That's what I'm reporting. And yeah, the thing I could play devil's advocate against antler restriction, and I'm all for antler restriction, but when you put a three point minimum or a four point minimum, somebody shoots a three by three, right? They get excited. They saw a deer. It's moving around. It's hard to count points. Now, if you're on the spotting scope, you're glass and you spend a lot of time, you've removed that instantaneous that came around the corner trail there is. But there are some people out there who have a tendency to go, oh, that's not a legal buck. I'm going to leave it right here and shoot, shovel and shut up. And that's not, don't do that. Call the game and fish, self-report. They may take your buck. They may slap you on the wrist. But if you're the guy that goes, oh, I'm going to just kick some leaves over it and walk away. Now we're talking willful and abandonment. Now you're talking jail time, big fine. My advice to anybody out there listening is if you're, if you for some reason have an antler restriction season and you realize that after the shot that for whatever reason, elk, deer, pheasant, this isn't legal, self-report yourself. And it's going to be a lot better to tell the truth up front. It's going to end a lot better for you if you do that. (laughs) But I think it's a philosophy that we need to look at across hunting and fishing of what are the management goals, right? So you have lakes that winter kill. You have units of mule deer hit by chronic wasting disease, horrible winter, low fawn recruitment, whatnot. So then it falls into the game and fish's lap or fishing game, depending on what state you're in of. Now, what do we do about that? Do we just say nothing at all for the good of the area for a while? Do we say antler restriction? We cut tags way down and in the fishing sense, usually, man we got to start restocking don't know how long it's going to take for this fishery to rebuild itself but it i it's hard for me because a lot of times in the hunting and fishing world people are apt to blame the hunter for a legal kill right like you shot a small buck you kept a big walleye you shouldn't have done those things right 
because we have in our mind what we think they ought to do. We project onto them what they should be doing because I think this, right? So I, I would say to everybody that's listening, if you're one of those folks, and I am at times, and I will happily admit it, but I've gotten to the point now where I have to self-reflect and say, why do I feel that way? Am I feeling that way? Like, for instance, if somebody takes home a 10-pound walleye, am I feeling upset because I'm mad because I wanted to catch it when it was 12 or 15 pounds? Or am I mad because it actually hurt the fishery? Why am I upset? I think that's a good reflection point for a lot of hunters as well. If somebody takes a forked horn or a three-point, are you mad because in two years you can't kill a really nice buck? Or are you mad because they took it, you know, right now? What is the reason behind that? Do you care that there's less big bucks in the area or do you just care that it affected you? And that's what I've been putting back on a lot of people because I hear that a lot. And I travel around the state with my job and people always ask me about fishing because <laughs> I've been in the news about fishing. But they're like, what do you think about this? I had a guy on a recent trip we were talking about holding fish out for photos. I'm like, yes, I think it's fine to hold them out for photos. He didn't think so. And so I started asking why. And he's just like, people are lying. I was like, I do have a caveat to that. If you hold out a six inch bluegill and make it look like a 12 pound blue, tell the truth on what it actually is. Don't try to misrepresent it as something else. That's if it's all in good fun. It's just like getting way behind an elk. And getting a cool picture and making it look ginormous. The, the one pinky holding up the... <laughs> now, now, I've been accused... You know what I mean? I've been accused of this a little bit. But if you look at my pictures, I'm, I have my arms bent at holding... Now, sometimes, depending on where we're at, two years ago, my mule deer, my hips against his shoulder, I, I can't get any closer, right? This year, the way the hill was, I'm probably mid-deer, but I'm not behind his butt, you know, doing the, I've seen some of those. But see, I think those are all in good fun. It's like, it's the person taking in the information. It's on them to see why they feel the way they feel. My, because my favorite one is when people catch about a six inch brookie yeah. and take an action figure. Yeah. And <laughs> make it look gigantic. Make it look like it's a, a 200, 250 pound fish. Yeah. So. But it's just interesting. I think it's good for all of us as sportsmen to think about why we get upset about the things in the sporting world that we do. Because some of it is is there was a guy in the news recently he'd been killing eagles and grizzly bears and all this stuff and his ex-wife reported him and he's gonna be in big trouble right they raided his house they found this stuff it's okay to be upset about that like he, that dude's totally breaking the law doing things you definitely should not be doing but when i see a kid take a 10 pound walleye home that he got lucky and caught it's not worth it for me anymore to get mad now when 10 years ago i'd have got really mad about it now i'm like okay and, and that's where we can advocate and come together as sportsmen and go to the fishing game and say, look, and that's part of what I'm advocating mm -hmm. for here on the podcast is say, hey, guys, I think specifically a couple regions in Wyoming, a couple units, and not the whole state. I've had a couple non-residents say, I'm not putting in for Wyoming. I'm not coming. There. All, everything died. I'm like, it was... It was some local extirpation in some select herds and units. There's other units and herds that are above objective. Yeah. And that's the, that is the caveat of the whole wildlife conservation model is, okay, so they're going to raise tags in Gillette, so to speak, on their above objective. Sheridan's going to have more elk tags, and they have a specific problem of it's 92% private, yeah. and the private land people are are selling elk tags at 20 grand a whack, and so they don't, want, money. they don't want those elk off their ranch. But then they like to uh, talk out the other side of their mouth and go in and go, the elk are eating me out of house <laughs> and home. They're on my alfalfa field. 
And so the game and fish has, yeah. they're, they're fighting with, with one hand tied behind their back sometimes in some of these arenas because on one hand, these landowners want paid for crop damage, but then they don't want to let hunters on to remove the elk. And I get it. I own some ground right here. I like to grow my own pheasants. I'm going to be pretty mad if you come over and hop <laughs> the fence and shoot because I grow two pheasants a year. And you got to leave some seed for next year. So we like to harvest a pheasant off of my little tract here, right? Yep. But it's pretty neat to walk out your back door <laughs> during season, walk down and take your dog and shoot a pheasant. Someday I'll get to shoot a deer because, and you have that same opportunity at your house. And yep. I'd be upset. I know you'd be upset if somebody came across the fence and was pheasant hunting or deer hunting down there, especially you got kids with tags and that makes a little, this argument of private land, public land, where I'm going and talking about it's public. It's just period. Yeah. I want to bring up something else, though, too, because I hear this from sportsmen. Could be an angler, could be a hunter, but they're like, they're never going to change it. So here's the problem. Problem X, the game of fish is never going to change it. I hear that a lot. So then I'm like. So my voice isn't worth it. So my time isn't worth it. So I'm not going to even go to the meetings and. Basically and, giving up before you start. Right? Yes. So I'm going to. And I always say, then I'm going to give you an example of they actually will change it because I think it's been almost a decade now. It was about a decade ago. Danny and I got the rule changed by having a signed petition. We went around and we got signatures to raise the minimum length to keep a tiger muskie from 30 inches to 36. Why did we do that? It's simple. We want the muskies to make it to a size where they could actually do their job. Tiger muskies are typically stocked in waters to predate on white suckers or any other kind of sucker species or rough fish to help bring those down because they'll suck up all the available food and the game and fish is obviously trying to raise trout and they directly compete with trout. So they were like, let's put in tiger muskies to help control the population. They don't do a very good job at 30 inches because they can't eat very big suckers. But by the time they're 36 inches, they can eat really big suckers and they do a really good job. And the limit used to be three per day. So you could, if you knew what you were doing, you're fishing like a dead bait on the bottom or something, you could catch three muskies in a day that were 30 inches, take them home. It's also the most expensive fish that the game of fish raises because of having to get a purebred muskie and pike, putting them together, raising them up. They're, they're, and they have to raise them up to a much bigger size before they can even stock them. So you have this round and round, but we went and it took a year and a half. But we got the regulation changed because we got enough signatures and we went out and we did the work. So what I would tell people is you can make the change if you're willing to put in the work. But the problem is 99% of people won't actually do the actual work. They won't go knock on doors. They won't stand in Rocky Mountain and get signatures like we did. But it can be done and because they do listen. And we had really good logic behind what we were doing that was science-based. And Danny was a fisheries biologist, so that helped. But also, they saw that we were passionate about it. And we were passionate about those bodies of water. So if you want to have the best quality of fishing, you want to have that good predator-prey dynamic. And the great thing about tiger muskies is they don't live forever. They're sterile. And they die out. So once their service, once their uh, purpose has been served, they die off and they're gone. And you can keep them over 36 inches now. So if you want to take one home. But again, same thing on like these deer areas. If you care a whole bunch about it, this is why I tell folks, like you care a bunch about it, 
you better be getting a petition signed or, you know, make noise. Because if you just show up to the public meeting and yell really loud, that's probably not going to work. But if you come to the public meeting like we did and you have pages of signed documentation of other people that agree with you. And you have that a, has a, lot and more. a relatively calm, cool demeanor yep. and can be art- articulate your argument. You may not always get your way. Game and fish is always going to it's always going to be a compromise mm-hmm. because they're fighting the anti-hunters who don't want us taking any of these deer, right? Every day. Part of what I'm going to advocate for is in this unit specifically, I'd like to keep it general, but I'd like to do like a quota, right? So you can still get your tag over the counter, but the first so many people that basically pick this unit, okay, we're out, we're, we're sold out, no more quota. And next year you'll have to get in line and get your tag a little earlier and say, yes, I want to go hunt that unit and I want to specifically hunt big deer. You just want to hunt a deer? There's other units, right? It's similar to, I want to let the muskie, I want to let the deer get to the 36 <laughs> You want to let them inch. grow. Yeah. I want to let and in I get that it. unit, not statewide. I'm not trying to reduce access, reduce opportunity. It's just this unit for a little while needs some extra special attention and help so that it can be, I'll come out and say it, it's probably the best unit in the West. Yeah. And it may need to go limited quota for a while or maybe forever. That might just be the management tool, but that's where the game and fish needs to make that decision. And so maybe it's even as much as going to them and saying, we need to do a really good assessment to see, because my observation is I saw a hundred some odd deer last year. And this year I saw 12, 12 bucks. Like that's a problem. But I, I think that they're looking at that anyway. The whole state got rocked, as a lot of people know. If you're a pronghorn hunter, a deer hunter, the elk did pretty well. I mean, we did have some die-off, but it was nothing like the mule deer and the pronghorn. They just got hammered. But the elk will tolerate 50% more snow. They will paw through and get their feet. Yeah. And they have a lot larger body mass to start with. To Now, do we still have some winter die-off? Certainly. But yep. it wasn't, you know, the line down the highway of, of truckloads of antelope being hauled off that just couldn't get to feed. I'll tell you what, man. I So part of my work area is Pinedale. And so between Farson and Pinedale, I've driven it a ton this fall. I didn't see one pronghorn. I didn't see one mule deer until I got to Pinedale itself. The only thing I saw were feral horses everywhere. So there's horses. They survived, but the pronghorn did not and the mule deer did not. And if you go, if you take the road and you go towards Kemmer, there's pronghorn over there. But when you get into that little corridor there between Pinedale and Farson as you go north, nothing. And it's crazy, man, because you and I both have driven that road a lot. Used to see pronghorn everywhere. Used to see mule deer everywhere. (laughs) Now it's just, oh, man. So back to my oil field days, Jonah and the Mesa fields are over there. And it's two years, every two weeks, driving back and forth. And it was was nothing to see half a dozen deer hit, fresh deer hit on the road. And now, like you said, you can't even see a deer. It was It's crazy. Everybody put lights on their truck because it was multiple near near misses <laughs> on deer and antelope on that road. Man, I almost wiped out a whole herd of antelope one time, driving it in the middle of the night to go tiger muskie fishing in Utah. There used to be a couple of really good fisheries just over the border. And Danny and I left one time, I think it was at like midnight. We were driving towards Kemmer, and all of a sudden it was just like, herd of prong in the road pucker factor of 10 slam on the brakes and we're pulling a boat but there used to be tons and tons of them and i think it goes back to that whole stewardship thing that you and i are always trying to impart on the listeners is 
we really have to figure this out as a state, not just as the state agency. Like we can't put all the onus on the game and fish, but as sportsmen, we have to look at it and say, what are we doing to steward this incredible resource that we have? Because it's taken a monster hit. It it could be a lot of different things, right? And I'm not going to say what the right thing is because I don't really know, especially when it comes to mule deer. That one's real complicated, but what I do know is we need to be part of that solution. And what's really cool is that you guys going out doing that hunt, you're gathering some great intel, right? And you can pass that along to these biologists and say, this is what I saw. I spent all this time. This is it. What can we do? And I bet you they have ideas. Uh, and I, I would concur. And it's I've got a lot of thoughts going through my mind, but one of them is the this is a multifaceted problem. We talk about Pinedale. They're putting in game fences and game crossings. And since they've just uh, north of Pinedale, they've put in that deer fence. And just the deer fence alone, and I think they've got a couple game crossings now. They're going to put a couple more in. And that's sportsmen's dollars that is funding that and sportsmen who are championing that. Now the state's kicking in. I think there's some federal money, too. But it was nothing just three miles north of Pinedale to drive out and there was always a dead deer always. on the road. Yep. And now they've got, what, eight foot high deer fencing funneling down to a, a game crossing and there's now no more deer. Yeah, There's no more hit deer on the side of the road north of Pinedale. So there are solutions out there. Now, is that going to solve it? Is the No, that's one tiny issue here, right? And the next issue to talk about, I just read the other day, is there now is reported CWD in that herd over there. They did have a confirmed. And so we're coming off of a really horrible winter. 80% adult deer die off. Went from 120 deer down to 12 deer in the same span of time. Actually, double span of time. And so now we're going to be having CWD creep through that same. So now they're getting a double whammy. So that's why I'm here advocating and reporting that, hey, guys, this unit that supposedly, and it's not supposedly, it's produced over 200-inch deer. It's a world-class unit. Yeah. And... That's been consecutively produced over 200 class deer since I've been here and probably since the 70s. So that's where I'm at. And my thought goes to, you know, the moose, wolf, prey predator relationship in Jackson Hole. They've been sub replacement recruitment on calves forever. They also have the bot fly and the bot fly is very detrimental to the moose population. We've talked about that with biologists years ago. And the bot fly flies up the moose's nose and starts starts doing its life cycle and eventually kills the moose. And between that and everything else, you used to see a lot of moose. <laughs> that section driving north out of Jackson Hole, you it would be nothing to, when I first come, you'd see a lot of moose. You don't see moose anymore. I'll tell you this, David, when I was a kid, just driving from Dubois until Moran Junction, used to see six to 12 moose. I haven't seen a moose. I, I saw two moose last year, and I drove that road several times. I got good news to report right out here on Ocean Lake is a cow with twin calves. Oh, She's really? been on the alfalfa field right <laughs> And last year there was a cow, a calf, That's and a bull. Funny. There was probably 20 pheasant hunters out there, and they jumped. These moose are just running through the willows, and it was, I pulled myself one out and videoed it because it was just That's cool. comical to look out and see 12 <laughs> pheasant hunters, and everybody's looking at the moose. Okay, which way is it going to run? Hopefully yeah. it doesn't come at me. So I guess if you're pheasant hunting or ice fishing at Ocean Lake, beware. There is a, a moose running around. The moose is loose. And I do love to, that is probably the, the coolest part of this mule deer hunt is while it's still a hunt, 
is getting to watch these deer, pattern these deer, not pattern like whitetail on a trail camera, coming down a trail and hitting a feed food plot. No, this is, he comes down this deer trail, goes through the saddle, goes out, feeds his basin. Oh, you watch him go back and oh, he's bedded under that mm-hmm. tree. And a lot of times when they bed under a tree, especially if they're a bigger buck, half their rack sticking out. So it's like the the big kid behind a, behind a skinny tree going, you don't see me. It's I see you right there. It's like that meme with Shaq hiding behind a tree. Yeah, that's not working. And what I would say is if you're going to do the mule deer thing, when I first started, it was all just about quantity of stocks. I just got to get more stocks and eventually it's going to happen. Now it's finding that deer, patterning that deer and waiting until he beds in a place and the winds that I have a suspicion that based on the conditions, based on where he's at and to, to break it down even further, if it's, I spot this deer at 6am and it's going to be reasonably warm, but not hot. I watch him go to his bed. If it's within an hour hike, depending on what those wind currents are doing, I'm going to get above that deer, wait for the sun to hit, wait for that wind to start coming up and come from above him and come on top of him. If the wind's swirling, if it's going to start snowing, he might change beds if it's too far to stalk. Once you put human scent in these basins up high, and they call it tier one country, those deer go down into tier two, and if they get any pressure in tier two, they're going to tier three. So they're going to the deep, dark timber. And once you get them in that deep, dark timber, it's 20, 50-yard visibility. So what we're playing the game of is these deer. I like to catch them in that above alpine, and it's just cool to sit down behind a spot scope with your buddy and go hey that one over there oh no but i'm looking at this one over here okay you look at that one i'll watch this one. Oh look oh no this one's bigger over here it's like watching fish on a f- not a fish finder but a video cam underneath and you, you can watch them up and then watch them interact with the bait and maybe you just put the camera down in a place where there is no bait it'd be almost like scuba diving and watching fish and then going okay now we're going to go after that monster that's over <laughs> under that line. yep i I think mule deer hunting is really one of the more unique hunts. Pronghorn is its own style. Elk is its own style. And mule deer is its own style. And whitetail. That's part of the fun of it, right? It's just like different types of fishing bring a different aspect. I've always loved mule deer ever since I was a little kid. I'll never forget the first hunt that I accompanied my dad on was a big mule deer hunt. And it's a really nice big buck that he got that year. And... I just remember going up and feeling the fur and touching the antlers and just checking it out. It was like one of the coolest things ever for a little kid, especially when you're like, man, I want to be like my dad. I want to go hunting. And mule deer are just something special for those of us who are just so blessed to have them out here in the West and get to pursue them. They're one of the coolest animals out there. They're just, they're quiet. They're ghost-like. They're beautiful. But yeah, they're just an incredible animal, and I'm really glad you got to go hunt them. I haven't really, like, mule deer hunted in quite a long time, but they're so cool. And I can see the allure of it, because it is its own thing. It's not elk hunting, it's not pronghorn, it's its own deal. The hard part with, and in the years past, I've always gone, filled my archery elk tag, and then I'm like, okay, now archery elks, put the bow away, take the rifle. I'm quickly going to trans, I'm quickly going to, uh, flip it around and I did this year I went for the first two weeks deer hunting and then I'm like we'll go deal with elk after the deer I was surprised I figured you'd be <laughs> chasing the elk and you're like nope I'm deer hunting and I was like all right so I cheated 
archery elk season was open while rifle deer season was open. So I packed both weapons for the first week. And the hard part was there was two or three different, we're camped in a teepee, Mm -hmm. little titanium stove, cots, air mattresses, took the llamas. So we had food and you could take, I can hike a long ways when I just have a rifle on my back. And there for a while, my buddy was packing the bow, I was packing the rifle. And there was two or three nights I can remember, the elk were screaming, and they were so close to the tent, talking 50 yards from the teepee. Yes, we put the teepee in a couple of the wrong spots. Now, there's the right spot for a deer hunt. It's right in the middle of the elk meadow for an elk hunt, right? And a couple (laughs) guys are like, yeah, you're going to blow them out. I'm like, I don't care about them. So I did get a, a couple bull elk opportunity in that trip and mostly it was get up waiting for the light and 200 yards over there there's a bull screaming i'm like hey i'm gonna grab the bow and wander over there for a few minutes until it's time to glass for deer and we did find looking in the rocks and the cracks and we're glassing up underneath basically sheer rock and these deer are feeding out of the timber and feeding right in these little shale shoots and so we were finding bucks just not the quantity and quality so i did we called in one raghorn four-point bull elk at 12 yards and I thought about it and as he's trotting through I pulled the phone out and tried to take some video of him put the bow down just because he came over the hill about 50 trotting right at us my buddy was calling 40 yards behind me and that bull came 12 or 14 yards past me and it was as I come to full draw I'm like just practicing I if I and this is a piece of advice when I first saw the antlers say it was north and the collar south and the elk came right about east of me if i would truly been wanting to harvest that elk i would have drawn my bow when he was behind a little brush at about 55 60 yards trotting towards me because i wanted to get some cell phone footage i waited till he got 90 degrees to my left basically east of me and then i was like okay i got some footage i'm going to try and draw my bow now he didn't tolerate that. He whipped around. <laughs> he ran out to 30 yards, stopped, and looked back. Still gave me a shot opportunity. It was just a smaller bull. I do remember I did. I'll let the listeners know I messed up on a really good bull. We're laying in the tents. And it's, Patrick, it's really hard to sleep when every 15 <laughs> minutes. And there was, that night particularly, there was three bulls. One east, one west, and one south of us. And they were screaming at each other. And the furthest one was 500 yards away. And the closest one was 200 yards, right? And one thing I found interesting is with the llamas, they don't spook deer and elk. They just don't. They they look at them like they're another ungulate. And they're like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, you're not spooked. Okay, I'll go back to feeding. You're a funny looking elk over there. I was actually pumping water in the only spring around to get, and I had a calf run up eight yards from me. I hauled the water back to the tent. I was taking my spotting scope back out to do a glass, evening glass, and I looked to my left, and there's another raghorn bull coming into the spring about 60 yards. I'm like, oh, maybe I should take my bow over there too. But the one particular morning, the smaller bull went quiet. I crept over the edge and looked down, and below me was nine cows and a herd bull of 330, 340 caliber. I stepped on a stick and blew the whole thing up. (laughs) It was heart-wrenching because... Good bull. But those are the things that keep you going back. So it's okay. (laughs) If we had been, David in years past would have said, forget this deer hunting, there's no deer, let's go chase elk. And we did for a day or two do some early morning call for a half hour. If we can't get on the elk, we glass the rest of the day. But the goal is to get a monster mule deer, and you're just going to have to time in the saddle is the only thing that's going to produce it. And 
trying different units. And one guy gave me a piece of advice. And you know how you kill big deer? You hunt for big deer. You pass little deer. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's, it, it's the same thing like in fishing in some ways where you focus on the bodies of water with the big fish and you throw big fish type baits. You throw big baits. And sometimes you catch little fish on X, <laughs> but the ones that have an but appetite bigger than they are. The bigger baits are going to preclude you from catching that medium size. That Most the, of the time. They just are. Silly little perch. Have you ever caught like a three inch perch on a big crankbait? I have. And it's, what were you thinking? This thing's bigger than you are. <laughs> In Alaska, those little sculpins. Oh yeah. Inch long sculpin will bite a two inch long hook. And you're like, oh, you get the trophy award for the smallest fish today. Yeah. Sculpins are pretty cool though. For a little fish, they're pretty neat. They are. They can get big, but when you, when you go pick it, pick your rod up, you can't even feel them. And you, here's this two, cool. three inch sculpted dangling there, but it's cool, man. I'm glad you got to share about the mule deer. Mule deer hunting is just near and dear to all of us that live out here in the West because they're just such a cool animal. And let's hope that they make a good comeback. It's a little, it's a little freaky really when you look at the situation, but Again, I mean, you, if anybody has strong feelings about it, talk to your managers, talk to your biologists, get involved in some way or another. Like, I know they're trying to raise money for a crossing up by Dubois. I just made that trek today, saw five deer hit. So, and I almost, there was a guy flashing me as I was coming down the hill, coming back from Dubois, and there were like 12 bighorn sheep on the road, and they were all collared up. But yeah. Those highway crossings for these animals are a big deal, not just a mule deer. We made a trip over through Jackson over to Idaho this last week, and on our way there and home, we stopped and looked at the deer, and there, there's a few big bucks appeared, but one of those... There's a real big one out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> one of those alfalfa fields, when we stopped and looked at it, had... The good news to report is there are some mule deer in Dubois at the moment. I don't. I may have saw all of them, but there was 500 to 1,000 head of mule deer. In one 200-acre one alfalfa field, I saw a dozen bighorn sheep. At the same time, yep. there was probably 20 antelope. Yep. There was some whitetail, and then there was probably a dozen whitetail, and then there was 200 mule deer. And I'm looking, oh, there's a buck. Oh, there's a, there's probably five or six mature bucks chasing does. But I'm like, I look at it, and my wife had been up there the week before, and there had been elk and potentially a wolf in that field. So in the same week, there was antelope, sheep, elk, mule deer, whitetail. So that's a cool field. It's a fun drive because like today I saw bison. There's a bison ranch there. I saw the bighorn sheep. I saw the mule deer. I saw pronghorn antelope. And you might see elk. You might see moose. It's just fun to drive through there and see all the different animals. It's a heck of a cool drive and beautiful. If you've never been to Dubois, Wyoming, I'm going to give them my plug right now. It's super cool when you're driving in from the Riverton side because on the right hand, it's Badlands. And it looks super cool. All kinds of colors in that dirt and rock. So cool looking. And then on the left, you got the Wind River Mountains. Pretty tough to beat that. It's a pretty tough spot to beat. If I could move the company anywhere, I would, move it up I there. Would, I would move to Dubois. It's a great area. But I also want to say a big shout out to the sponsors. Again, thanks to Bo Spider for powering the podcast. And if you guys are out there spotting stock, nothing better to have if you're doing the compound bow even the good old compound not compound what am i thinking of crossbow crossbow thank you launched crossbow but the the crowd favorite still is the truck headrest Mm -hmm. by far however the hip is the most convenient it was designed to be on your backpack for a reason because that's the most comfortable yep and then also pk lures i've done a really bad job of getting out and fishing this fall because i've been so busy but 
I can tell you guys with ice coming up, your flutter fish and PK spoons. They also have, again, go back to the Kurt Reef episode. They've got some new releases for the winter time, which are going to be awesome. And I can't wait to try them. Some so, bigger stuff and some smaller stuff. Yep. So go to pklure.com. You can pick those up. And then last but not least, High Mountain Seasonings. You've been processing elk. So I'm sure High Mountain's a part of that game plan. Oh, we already made quite a few snack sticks and we've adjusted the recipe a little bit. So I'm going to throw this out there. We haven't quite got the video done yet, but snack sticks are a favorite. Delicious. So we did a five pound, a 10 pound, and then a four pound batch. One was deer, two was elk. Basically, we're adding about a quarter cup of cheese Mm. and a quarter pound of bacon per pound of meat. And it's, so what I've simply do is grind four pounds of burger get the uh, correct amount of seasoning and cure from high mountain seasoning to mix into that and they have it in there so it's easy they tell you exactly how to do it yep pretty much off memory it's two tablespoons of cure two tablespoons of seasoning and then like a teaspoon of cure on top of the two tablespoons but then we're grounding grinding either a quarter or a half pound of bacon for that four pounds and doing two cups of cheese mix all that together good stuff it and smoke it now, we did jerky shooter gun and stuffed casing sticks. Everybody likes the jerky shooter sticks more than the casing sticks because it's the same meat put in the smoker at the same time. And the kids like, I like I the whole muscle. Catch, I think it catches the, the flavor a little more. Smoke maybe. a little more. I don't know. A little easier That's to just eat. my theory. So, so, but it's all gone. Yeah, I, so I believe I have it. to make more. So we raised pigs this year and I used High Mountain's chorizo recipe for some of the grind and made chorizo sausage and i totally broke the rules i told the guys over at high mountain this i was like i totally broke the rules because i doubled the recipe i doubled the amount of seasoning of chorizo seasoning because i like the heat i like that and i gave some to edgar he's like the foreman there and he said dude that stuff was so good so don't be afraid to play with it a little bit now i will tell you don't play with the cure part because that you can oversalt it really easy but if you want to put more seasoning more of the actual seasoning itself go for it we also did a buckboard bacon cure on the bacon and it turned out great so go to high mountain jerky check them out we're just super grateful for our sponsors but yeah man here we go it's time to buckle up for winter time and get ready to go do some ice fishing and some cow cold cutting. water stuff yeah so my daughter and i still got the cow elk tags to go so hopefully we can get out and get that done she's very excited I, like I said, I did the llama thing, but I did bust the horses out for a couple different elk trips and got in the mountains and got, got your elk. I got to ride the new Colt and he is uh, phenomenal. And he's Arnold Schwarzenegger. I like that. It's, 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 <laughs> you know, I've had, I've got some decent horses, but this one is going to be uh, something to be proud of. As soon as you said that, I thought of get to the chopper. But anyway, guys, thanks again for listening. We'll come back again next time. Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a RADCAST community on Facebook called RADCAST Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course, please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. 
Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors. 